O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. And it was in the beginning, this now, and ever will be, ever shall be, excuse me, world without end. Amen. Praise the Lord, the Lord's name be praised. So that's the original. Now, King's Chapel and Dr. Freeman did not go far from that. The Lord opened our lips and our mouth shall show forth our praise, and God makes speed to save us, and Lord make haste to help us. But instead of the glory be, says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Praise be the Lord. The Lord's name be praised. The substitution is interesting to me in part because it does affirm the King Eternal, which in Anglicanism has a little double entendre, because whether it's the seated monarch or the Eternal One, um, you're drawn to connect those two, which is not a model context uh, with um, some of the, Israeli, the Israelite understanding of King's placement. But of course, this is a chapel in the place where the king has been deposed by our republic. And so it's just kind of interesting to me. And those are words that you can think about. Well, my sermon today will be brief, in part because its subject is so immense that it will take a few weeks for us to dish out the subject and to digest it. We're talking this month about a series of sermons delivered in Baltimore 200 years ago, which began to coalesce a group of civic leaders who would found this liberal community of faith, independent and unitarian, in February 1817, 200 years of community and commitment. Now next week, I'm going to speak about the person of Reverend Dr. James Freeman, the first minister ordained by the proprietors of what was then called the Stone Chapel in Boston. Nowadays we call it by its original name, King's Chapel. Dr. Freeman was invited by Henry Payson and those who became the founders of this church to come to Baltimore in October 1816 to give a series of public lectures. The following weekend, we're going to mark Dedication Day on Saturday evening with a panel of speakers including Ed Papenfus, former Maryland State Archivist, and our own church historian, Dr. Catherine Evans. We'll talk about Baltimore, the Baltimore that Dr. Freeman visited in 1816. And on the next day, our music director, James Houston, and the musicians of our congregation, our choir, and others will take us on a tour of 200 years of music at First Independent Church, our original name, First Unitarian Church, and First Unitarian Church, parenthesis, Universalist, and if you didn't get it, Unitarian, closing parenthesis. But this morning I want to share some of my thoughts about the so-called Unitarian controversy. 
On Friday night, several of our several of us celebrated with our companion congregation, Wayland Baptist Church, when they ordained their licensed minister, Gail Briscoe, along with two other licentiates, who, like Minister Briscoe, had served for a decade, or and who in recent years had been prepared for ordination out of licensure by Reverend Dr. John A. Lund Sr. of the Berean Baptist Church, known colloquially as the Baptist Catechizer of Baltimore. Dr. Lund has prepared dozens of licensed ministers to become ordained in the Baptist tradition as ministers of the gospel. The interrogation of the ordinaries began with a question not familiar in this tradition. Do you believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I have to tell you, the question made me squirm a little. I'm a great fan of Jesus, you see. That man, Jesus, has been an exemplar for me, especially when I've gotten in trouble for disobeying a federal officer or otherwise been an irritant out on the street. And my memory of that man, Jesus, learned through the stories told about him, brought me solace when I needed to say goodbye to people I have loved who died and in the Christian faith. Do you believe in that man, Jesus? Well, yes, I suppose I do. The Holy Spirit. Well, when we sing Spirit of Life, I'm sure I have a sense of the Spirit that flows among us, that may indeed sing in my heart all the stirrings of compassion. Our great theologian James Luther Adams said that to the extent we Unitarian Universalists believe in God, it is the third person of God that we adore. The Spirit is who we know. We rely on the Spirit to sustain our walk and to guide our conscience toward justice. Do you believe in the impersonal but in intimate divine spirit of her breath, or your conscience, or your connection to all things, well, of course, who wouldn't? But do you believe in the triune God? Sigh. I guess I just don't. I love the poetry of God. I love the notion of divinity having personality, even multiple personalities of divinity existing in a community of relationships. I love all those poetical notions. But to say I believe when I don't makes me sigh. And it helps me understand that that's part of what makes me a Unitarian. I took on this Unitarian Universalist name and identity through the universalist chapters of our story, the sense that there was a love so great that none could be lost was the compelling message for me. But to imagine that the power of love comes from it being undivided, 
being one love opens a door to me. An undivided love, yes, an undivided God. I'll accept that. I'll become a Unitarian. Now there have been three notable moments in human history when Unitarians lived in a community where they became the dominating force. In the sixth century of the Common Era, the church and government of Ravenna, Italy, were Unitarians. This Unitarian community struggled with the notion of the equality of Jesus with God the Father. They believed that God the Father had to have existed before Jesus, and thus while Jesus, they said, was divine, he was no co-equal to the Father. These sixth century Christians were caught in a political and military struggle over the end of the Roman Empire, and the theological assertion of tri-unity was imposed on them by the political and military victors. The Arian Cathedral and its famous, famous baptistry were turned over to the Orthodox believers by Emperor Justinian. A thousand years later, Unitarian King John Sigismund of Hungary, Prince of Transylvania, ordered religious toleration in his lands. Now, one was required to identify as some, but the king was open to all the faith traditions that he had personally experienced. And as a person who had been Roman, who had become Lutheran, who had moved to reformed position and finally became an anti-Trinitarian or Unitarian, all of those were acceptable to him. This happened at a time when Europe, Central Europe, was engaging Islam in new ways. Through trade, through military conquest, through academic exchange, uh, eventually through the success of the Ottoman Empire in incorporating much of Central Europe, the notion of the undivided nature of God was a compelling idea to which many Christians converted and by which others defined themselves, Unitarian, Trinitarian. The short-lived Unitarian Kingdom was born of such political and ideological ferment. But the third great expression of the Unitarian ruling culture was our own. When, in the days of our Republic, much of the political, educational, and moral leadership of Boston, Massachusetts was given by Unitarian Christians. We'll go into this in greater depth next week during religious education for all at 9.30 a.m. Be there or be triangular. <laughs> but recall the period in eastern Massachusetts of, from about 1805 to about 1835, the Unitarian-Trinitarian controversy. As I said, I'll speak in greater detail next week. But I want to say this controversy was not just theological, it was also political. And it's perhaps the politics of it that's the most important thing for us to think about. The Standing Order Churches of Massachusetts had adopted Calvinism 
as the original, uh, official religion of New England in 1648. They sought to merge the congregationalism of some English settlers with the Presbyterianism of some of the Scots. They sought to reconcile the non-separating congregations from the separatists. The compromise, which we call the Cambridge Platform, established the ruling theology and the public governance of New England. I don't know if you remember the Calvinist tulip. T, the total depravity of the human. We are entirely affected by sinful nature. You, the unconditional election that God chooses whom God will save without merit. L, limited atonement. Jesus only died for some of us. Thank you very much. I, the irresistible grace of God. If God has elected you, you can't say no. And P, the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. But you don't really know what you are until you find out. <laughs> this official stance of the New England churches of the standing order stood side by side with its greatest challenge, the desire for an educated leadership. One of the first acts of the churches in 18, excuse me, 1636 was the establishment of a college, later called Harvard, so that the moral leadership of Massachusetts Bay Colony would be educated. The ministers, of course, and the teachers, both named in the Cambridge platform as people to uh, serve the public good and be paid for it. A couple of hundred years into this relationship, a whole cast of moral leaders had been schooled in the thinking of the Enlightenment. And with a developing sense of science and a more thorough understanding of history, with the development of better language studies and an appreciation of biblical criticism, a crisis arose where the old Calvinist point of view was no longer tolerable. Many. The election of Reverend Henry Ware to become the teacher of divinity at Harvard was seen as the beginning of the controversy. It's the story of the breaking of a fragile balance that existed both in the faculty and in the corporation of Harvard that between the traditionalists that they called the Orthodox and the liberals who were named that bad name, Unitarian when both the divinity professorship and the presidency of Harvard were vacant and each was filled by a liberal, the argument, the, the balance was broken and an argument broke forth. And my argument this morning is that the Orthodox actually did have something to be scared of in the election of Mr. Ware. And I want to share with you some selections from a traditional catechism, and then a catechism that had been revised by Mr. Ware. And you may have heard this in studies when you were little. Whence comes it to pass that you have been such a sinner? The answer, I was born into this world with inclination to that which is evil, and I have too much indulged these inclinations all my life. That's the traditional approach. What Mr. Ware said was, I became so by an unguarded and foolish indulgence 
of my irregular appetites and passions in opposition to the law written on my heart and to the plain dictates of the Holy Scripture. The second question, how came you to be born with such an inclination to evil? The traditional answer, all men are born in sin because they come from Adam, the first man who sinned against God. Interestingly, Mr. Ware omits the question. <laughs> question, is not Jesus Christ God as well as man? Answer, though he be a man, yet he is God also, for he is a glorious person in whom God and man are joined together, and his name is Emmanuel, or God with us. Again, there seems to be a big blank space in Mr. Ware's catechism. How could Christ obtain pardon and life for us by his doing or suffering? Traditional answer, our sins have deserved death. Christ was the Son of God and perfectly righteous, and God appointed him to suffer death, to take away our sin, and to bring us into his favor. The Enlightenment education instead responds, by the gracious appointment of God, who was pleased to accept the obedience of Christ unto death as a vindication of his righteous government in granting pardon to penitent sinners and raising them to happy immortality. What is baptism? Traditionally, it is the washing of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. doesn't tell me a whole lot. What is baptism to the liberal? It is a solemn washing with water as a sign, a distinguished mark of our belonging to the visible Church of Christ who has enjoined a compliance with this right upon all who believe his gospel and hope for salvation through him. In opposition to the law written on my heart, I sin. Christ, the establisher of a righteous government, granting pardon and raising us to happiness, the solemn and distinguishing sign of belonging. These are the theological challenges to Calvinist orthodoxy that the liberal faction would raise, that humanity is not utterly depraved, but with good written on our hearts, that the good God sought to know was the goodness that we can show. Oh, my goodness. This argument is not about whether God is one or three, but whether humanity is good, morally able, of inherent worth and dignity. On these questions of the human heart, the Unitarians were clear. Beyond theology, there are political challenges to Calvinist orthodoxy that the liberal faction would raise. It's this breaking of the understanding of an elect called to rule over us all, of spiritual atonement not for the many, but for the few, of a political system that required the standing order churches, congregations, both Trinitarian and Unitarian, to establish the rules of the commonwealth. These were challenges that the Unitarian-Trinitarian controversy would raise up, and these challenges would be resolved by a call to fuller democracy. In 1833, 
the standing order of established churches will be disestablished. In the late 1830s, leaders of the liberal faction will ponder whether there should be established an alternative denomination of Unitarian churches. And during the Civil War, another moment of political and moral struggle, Unitarian churches across the country would provide support for the United States Sanitary Commission and Unitarian congregations will begin to know themselves emphatically as not the old standing order, but as something voluntary and something new. 500 years ago, a great transition came to Christianity in Europe. The monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg in Spain, Ignatius of Loyola instituted reforms to the church. America's first cathedral was established in Santo Domingo, and the cruelty enacted on the native Taino people brought demands for reform within church and society. A new and more complex Christianity was emerging, with the decentralization of power and focus, with a broader set of acceptable theologies, with, on the one hand, schools of faith that yearned for an earlier day that would never return, and on the other, a protesting group, many protesting groups, that would call for a revision of the understanding of the relationship of human with human, and humanity with God. We may today be in the opening years of yet another great emergence with the capacity for people to communicate with others and the possibility of human relatedness may allow us to rethink what it means to be human and to rethink what it means to be religious. The old paradigms of Orthodox and Roman and Protestant, of Christian and Muslim and Jew, of a singular faith declaring itself the singular truth, the one true church, or the unique way of salvation, that all may be passing away. Our Unitarian Universalism is neither the name nor the experience for the world's great emergence, but our conviction that the religion of this house is the religion of relationship, the religion of being in touch with scientific advance, the religion of an interconnected world in an interconnected web. This faith that sought to reconcile traditional understandings of God with the age of reason may be one way by which the human story is preparing that a page might be turned, not without challenge, not without confusion, not without loss and heartbreak, but for a people who have learned to do our work despite our wounds, a people who dare to draw and declare obvious conclusions about human lives that matter. A people who have learned to grow beyond the days when we were a tiny, wealthy, and otherwise privileged elite, and instead will willingly take up the role of being the advanced forces, the vanguard, if you will. We face this great emergence of the next chapters of the human story with expectation and confidence and even joy. 
The Unitarian story tells us that this precious life we live and together share unites us in ways that we do not yet understand. The Universalist story that we treasure assures us that love is at the center of the work of the universe. In the birth of the stars and in the births of us, our individual births and the birth of this congregation. Like our forebears, we step into our future to live deliberately, to suck the marrow out of life, to persevere joyfully, and to live it with unity and tolerance, relying on our fortitude in a search for peace. Blessed be, friends. Salam. Shalom. Shalom.